0: My name is Joshua, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be preaching from the passage that Ed just read, so please turn your Bible there or go to the back table and find one if you would like to follow along. Um, We're going to be looking at the book of 2 Corinthians this summer, and the reason why is because 2 Corinthians um, is about suffering. So if you're expecting a light summer series, you know, on the Psalms of Praise, then I apologize because we're looking at the cross and how the cross shapes our suffering and our mission in this world and our hope and everything that we do. And the reason why is because we we are a people who suffer and we have experienced in our community A lot of suffering, it may be hard to tell just by looking around, but a lot of the people in this church, in these pews right now, are going through dark times, and we need God's Word to teach us, to comfort us, to point us to the cross, and to point us to our hope. And so that's why we're going to be diving into suffering the next um, four or five sermons. And And that's also why I'd like to begin with prayer, to ask God to guide us. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. Speak to us, speak to tired and weary hearts who need to hear the comfort that comes from your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here together be pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, there is a lie that we often believe in America, in our culture. There's a lie that we often buy into, and it's a lie that rarely gets spoken. It kind of just lingers in the background, and it goes something like this. If you work hard, if you make the right decisions, if you hang out with the right crowd, if you're never in the wrong place anytime, then you can avoid suffering and live a comfortable life. In other words, if you play it safe, you'll be safe. And of course, the backside of that would say that if you are suffering, then you must have done something wrong. You must have made a wrong decision somewhere along the way. And maybe that's the reason why we sometimes look at the poor and think, if they'd made better decisions, they wouldn't be there. Or maybe we look at our underemployed neighbor and think, if they'd only chosen a different degree... They wouldn't have to suffer in this way. Or we look at the immigrant fleeing violence, and we think there must have been something they could have done, something they could have done to be safe, to avoid being where they are in this moment. Or we look at our neighbor's health, ill health, and we think if they'd only taken better care of themselves, then maybe they wouldn't be suffering right now. Suffering, after all, is avoidable if we just try hard enough. If we just work hard enough and we just make the right decisions. Maybe we, we don't want to think about it too much. Maybe that's the reason why we look away from the sufferings of others. And maybe that's even the reason why we look away at our own suffering. And maybe that's the reason why we give such terrible comfort to those who suffer. Maybe you've heard um, the rationalist approach to suffering and to comfort. The rationalist says to someone who's suffering, everything happens for a reason. Have you heard that? Well, maybe you've also heard the consolationist. Well, at least you have your other children. Well, at least you you are married. Well, at least you're single. At least you have a job. Hey, it could have been worse. You could have broken both legs. It's the consolationist. Or maybe you've heard the fixer. Have you tried fill-in-the-blank? Have you tried adoption? Have you tried paleo? Have you tried eHarmony? Have you tried volunteering with your time? Or maybe you've heard the relator. You know, that happened to my friend Stacy six years ago. It's not really comforting, is it? And maybe this is my favorite, the savant. I know exactly what you're going through, and here's what I did when I was in your situation. You know, even in Christian communities, we tend to wound the wounded and offer poor comfort right years ago some friends of mine were were really struggling because they desperately wanted a child and they tried and tried and and they could not conceive and they spent thousands of dollars on fertility treatments and and all the while the years that passed they were watching a baby boom in our church and they were seeing babies left and right and they were wondering why Can't we have a child? And finally, they spent their last savings. They said, this is our last attempt. We're going to try the treatments and gear up and muster up as much hope as we can for a child. And the last time failed. And they said, we can't conceive. And they told a group of people this in our church. They said, our last treatment failed. Looks like we're not going to have a child. And someone in that group immediately said, I am convinced that God is going to use you to minister to people through this. I'm convinced that God will use you to minister to other people who can't conceive. And as soon as that happened, I wanted to throw myself in front of this person to protect them from these words that would likely bring more pain, that would likely further wound. Yes, well-intentioned, well-meaning words that do contain truth at times, but in the moment tone deaf and unhelpful and ultimately harmful. Why do we do this? Why are we so bad at comforting the wounded? You know, in our Christian circles, sometimes we, we offer platitudes that have a Christian spin to it. We say, maybe God's trying to teach you something through this suffering. Maybe God wants you to minister to other people who suffer in a similar way. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. Maybe God is taking away your idols. You know, even, when, even as Christians with, with good intentions, we often wound the wounded with our words of comfort. And um, other times we, we're paralyzed because we don't know what to say and we say nothing at all and we wound with our silence. And I say all this not to shame us because there's a grain of truth in all of those things that were said. And I know that I have done the same things myself. I have hurt other people with my words. But I say this because it may show us that we have a warped view of suffering and the cross. Maybe we do this because we can't abide suffering for a moment. And we want to relieve the tension. Maybe we do this because we want to relieve our own discomfort and being in the face of suffering. And so we speak harmful words to take away the tension. Maybe we do this because we haven't dealt with our own pain and our own suffering. And the good news is we are not that different than the Corinthians. Um, Corinth was a wealthy city. It was a city of commerce And so um, it was a city of great wealth, and the church that was in Corinth was a city of great disparity. There were some who were of great means, and there were others who were suffering and poverty. If you remember from 1 Corinthians, the first letter Paul wrote to them, they were actually coming to communion, and some were feasting and getting drunk, and others were literally starving and hungry. And so Corinth, too, had maybe bought into the lie that we could buy our way out of suffering, that we could spend our way out of affliction, and that we could, if we had enough means, we could live comfortable lives. In fact, in, in Corinth, they associated suffering with failure, and that had even seeped into the church so much so that they looked at Paul, the apostle, the one who had who had pastored them and taught them so many things? They looked at him and they said, Wait, this guy seems to be suffering an awful lot. Um, like, what does this guy know? Can we really listen to Paul? His life seems to always be in shambles. He's always got this cloud following him around. He's always sick or suffering in some way. He's homeless. He's not even an impressive speaker. You know, you hear all that and you're thinking, wow, we actually, you know, Kyle and Joshua were not that bad um, compared to Paul. Um, but, but they were looking at Paul and they said, why should we listen to this guy? He suffers all the time. Isn't that a mark of God's wrath on his life? Isn't that a mark of God's displeasure? And so Paul writes to these Christians and, and he tells them, you worship a crucified Messiah. And he says, you, you have a thwarted view of suffering and comfort. And here's the crux of the matter. You have forgotten the cross. The cross of Christ is the lens by which they should view everything in this world under the curse. And it's the lens by which we should view everything in this world under the curse. And he shows them that there is comfort in the cross and there's also community in the cross. Now, there's comfort in the In the cross. That may seem like a paradox. But I think we sometimes fall into these traps where we think, um, like the prosperity gospel, if we do the right thing, then God will bless us and we won't suffer. And maybe it's not as much on the nose, it's just when we do suffer, we start to wonder, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Now Paul says, We've got to, to look to the cross to understand suffering and comfort. And he begins this letter to the, sec, to the Corinthians here in Second Corinthians. And in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. See, what he's saying to these Corinthians is, you think you can buy your way out of suffering. You think you can choose your way out of suffering. You think you can find comfort in romantic love or money or status or power or your career, but you can't. The the comfort that you really need has one source, and that comfort comes from God. He is the God of comfort. He's the God of all comfort, and he's the father of mercy. This is why we sometimes quote uh, the the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question asks this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And this is the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is my comfort. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. As he begins his letter, let's just get one thing straight. Comfort comes from knowing God. The only comfort in this world that matter matters comes from being united to the one who made you, being redeemed by the Lord. That is the source of true comfort. And in these words here, comfort and suffering, show us something about that. Because this word suffering here means being weighed down as if under pressure. And the word comfort means encouragement, strengthening. It's the Greek word paraklesis, to come alongside and to strengthen, to console. And what, what Paul is saying to them is our greatest suffering, our greatest pain in this life is that we are separated from God. And we are bowed down under the pressure and guilt of our sin. And our greatest comfort in this life is being reunited with that God who made us and being covered and atoned by the blood of Jesus. And any comfort that you seek apart from God will only be cold comfort. It won't be comfort for your soul, comfort for your sins that burden you and weigh you down. But then he goes on, after pointing them to the source of comfort, he goes on in verse um, in verse 5 to say, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now what Paul's doing here is a little subtle. First off, he says, let's remember God is the God of all comfort. That's where comfort comes from. But then he says, God also knows suffering. Jesus suffered. Right out of the gate, he's telling the Corinthians, if you think, that my suffering is proof that I'm not loved by God, then you've forgotten who you worship. You've forgotten that Jesus suffered, that he went to the cross, and that is the primary event of your salvation, is the suffering Messiah, the crucified Jesus. That's why in the first letter he said, the only thing I preach is Christ and him crucified. You need to know that your God has entered into this world and suffered on your behalf. And it's through his suffering that you are healed. In other words, he's saying that the comfort we receive comes through the cross, not apart from it. He's saying Christ suffered on the cross and through looking at the cross, you will rightly see your suffering. You know, I I was at a conference a few years ago, and this guy named Chris Wertz was speaking. He is a guy who works in contemplative spirituality and um, and activism, and teaching others who who work in nonprofits to connect with God so that they don't burn out. And he said years ago he had a friend who went to a monastery in Kentucky, Thomas Merton's monastery, Trappist monastery in Kentucky, and had this like amazing mountaintop experience. And he said, I went and I did this prayer, uh, this prayer walk, this trail through the woods. And I just felt so close to God through this prayer walk. You've got to go to Kentucky and do this prayer walk at this monastery, and you will have this amazing experience with God. So he goes there, and he's like not an athletic guy, um, which may be somewhat of a surprise for someone into contemplative spirituality. I don't know. Um, but he was not a guy who goes walking in the woods a lot. And so he gets there, and he's excited, and he asks the monks, like, okay, where's the prayer hike? And they're like, prayer hike? Isn't it, I mean, there's a, there's a trail over there. Like, that's the only trail we have. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to experience God and see this, like, mountaintop experience here. And so he starts hiking on this trail, and at some point, like, there's a little, like, fork in the trail, and he thinks, oh, this is a test. The monks, they're testing me. I've, I must take the path that's, that's least trodden because that's, that's what the monks would do. So he starts walking through this trail that, that is like covered in thorns and briars and, um, and ultimately leads to nowhere because it's not a trail. It's just like a deer path. <laughs> and so he has to like hike back to the path. And then he, he's like, okay, I'm back on the path. You know, I strayed and now I'm back. That's one of the lessons you're supposed to learn on this trail. And then he sees um, he sees this beautiful pond, and he's like, "Oh, the, the sea of tranquility, um, the peace that comes from following Jesus." Yeah, I'm, I'm, God, give me peace. I want the, I want to be serene like this water. And then he kind of says, "Well, that can't be that can't be it. I got to keep going. Maybe I'll find out, you know, the key to this prayer hike down the path." And so then he sees a statue of some disciples. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sleeping. And he says, oh, right, if you really want to meet God, you can't, you can't fall asleep. So, Jesus, I will not fall asleep on you. I will stay awake. Um, I want to meet you. I'm not going to fall asleep. And he says, okay, now I've got to go find the the moment that I've been looking for. And, in, and instead, he sees a, a statue of Jesus on the cross. And he's like, okay, yeah. You know, makes the sign of the cross, and he's like, Jesus, you died for my sins. Okay. And then he keeps hiking, and he's like, okay, now I'm really going to get to it. I'm going to get to, like, the mountaintop moment. And, and then the trail just ends, just ends in the woods. And he realized that this was no mountaintop experience that was, like, geared and designed to, like, bring you to some moment of tranquility This was just a a hike in the woods, and the the point of it was to sit and linger at the foot of the crucified Jesus. That was the point. The point was just to linger there, to see that the path of the cross is the path of suffering, and to, to contemplate on the one who suffered on your behalf. That was the point. The point was just to linger there at the foot of the cross, And yet, we have a hard time lingering at the foot of the cross, don't we? It's it's even true that sometimes we turn away from the suffering of Jesus. And it's true that we live as ones who know the story, and we know that Jesus was raised from the dead, and we live in light of the resurrection. And we are Easter people that celebrate the resurrection every week but we're also called to linger on the cross. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. You may have skipped the cross and gotten, gotten Easter. Go back and look at the cross. Don't forget that Jesus suffered. Don't forget that, that the incarnate Christ went to the cross and bled and died and received lashes. And by his wounds, you are healed. Your healing and your comfort actually come through sorrow. Your healing comes through suffering and affliction. Don't forget that. And your suffering and your affliction is actually sharing in the cross of Christ. And Paul actually um, says that the cross changes the way he sees everything. And he lays out in this letter kind of a theology of the cross. That it changes the way he sees suffering, the way he sees comfort, changes the way he sees hope, it changes the way he sees mission to the world. It changes everything. And so he says, don't miss the sufferings of Jesus. And if you think I've lost God's favor because I suffer, then you have lost the cross. You've forgotten the cross. And in fact, Paul goes on in this letter to name his sufferings. He is not ashamed. Um, In chapter 6, he goes on to say, um, by great endurance and by afflictions, by hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, all of these things are part of the suffering that Paul has endured. In chapter 11, he goes on even further, and he says, I've had uh, far more imprisonments than the other teachers who are trying to lead you astray. He says, I've had far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. They're probably thinking, I've sailed on the Mediterranean my whole life, I've never been shipwrecked. Paul's been shipwrecked three times. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for the churches. Paul suffers. And he's actually saying that's proof that he's preaching the gospel. And see, the Corinthians look at Paul kind of like the old um, lost dog ad that said, you know. Lost dog, missing an ear, one eye, three legs, recently castrated, answers to the name of Lucky. Um, I know that's a bad joke, but hey, it's the only one you're getting, because this is a sermon about suffering. So if you didn't laugh then, you missed your chance. Um, Paul is saying, yeah, my suffering is proof that I'm following in Jesus, all this suffering that I've experienced while delivering the gospel to people is, is me sharing in the suffering of Christ. And you too suffer, Corinthians. You may avoid it, you may deny it, you may try to avoid it, but you can't escape it. I know that you too suffering, you too suffer, whether you admit it or not. And if you miss the cross, you miss a chance to unite your suffering with the suffering of Jesus. And if you're following that, that list of things, you may notice that a lot of Paul's suffering seemed to come from, actually from following Jesus. And it's worth mentioning that the church is often, often born out of the blood of the martyrs. And even, even today, in Burkina Faso, in Iran, in China, Christians are being persecuted for the gospel. They are suffering because of Jesus, and Jesus takes their suffering and unites it to the cross of Jesus and uses that to grow the church. Some people estimate that, that soon China will have more Christians. There will be more Christians in China then there are people in the United States. And it's true that God uses the suffering of his people to proclaim his gospel. And we'll see that in, in subsequent chapters. But if you're following closely, you, you, you may be tempted to think, well, it's only the suffering that I do for the sake of the gospel that matters. It's only the suffering that I do. It's only persecution that matters that gets united to the cross of Christ. But if you were paying attention, you, you may be wondering, wait, what does a shipwreck have to do with persecution? What is danger in the wilderness and danger in the city? Yes, it's true that Paul was, was submitting himself to those dangers for the sake of the gospel. But he, in his detailing of his sufferings, includes disease and sickness unto death. And, and what Paul is doing is he's, he's saying, my theology of the cross is actually much bigger than you imagine. It's not just the persecution for the sake of the gospel that gets nailed to the cross. It's actually all of my suffering that gets nailed to the cross. It's actually everything that is under the curse of the fall that gets brought through the cross and resurrected on the other side through faith in Jesus. He's saying every wound... Every sickness, every sorrow, every shame, every sin that I bear goes to the cross. And you know, it's in vogue now to deny some atonement features of the crucifixion and to say that the cross is only just a demonstration of love. This is what it looks like to forsake all for those that you love. And it is true that the cross is a demonstration of love, but the cross is more than that. It's where our sins are atoned for. It's where our eternal comfort is secured. And if we lose the atonement, the substitutionary penal atonement of Jesus on the cross suffering on our behalf, we also lose not just our sins being atoned for, but, but all of our suffering and pain being dealt with and being resurrected. And Paul has this view that Because I suffer in Christ, I share in his cross and I will therefore share in the resurrection and I'll be raised with him and all of my pain and suffering, even the sickness and the shipwreck will somehow be raised and resurrected when he returns. And so when we suffer, we suffer with Christ. Through faith, if we're united to Him, our suffering has meaning and it will be redeemed. The suffering is not the end of the story. And suffering may actually be the means by which God is proclaiming His gospel to this world. So, what does it look like when you've had your view of comfort and suffering shaped by the cross? Does it look like, well, I just will have no sadness? I won't feel any pain. You know what? I'll never even talk about my suffering. I'm just going to rejoice all the time and never complain. I'm just going to get over it or ignore it. Well, what did it do for Paul? Verse 7. He says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So he says... Actually, if you have your life shaped by the cross, you will be able to share your suffering with other people and share your comfort in community. And then in verse 8, he actually plays this out. Verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's saying, I want you to know about my suffering. He says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. And most people think he's talking about a sickness or a disease here. And he says that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. See, Paul shares his sufferings with the Corinthians. He doesn't want them to be ignorant, he's vulnerable with them, to use our modern language. And, um, and he actually like, said, you know what? You're going to judge me for this probably. You're going to think this is proof of my failure, but I do not want you to be unaware of my sufferings. I want you to know of my pain and my sickness because I want to share my suffering with you so that we can share in comfort together and I can share the comfort of Christ with you as well. So, so if, you know, vulnerability is, um, I recently heard someone say a couple years ago, I want to be vulnerable, but um, I, I really need to know that you're not going to do anything um, with this information to hurt me. And um, another friend who was present to that said, well, then that's not vulnerability. Because vulnerability actually means there's a risk. Brene Brown defines it as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And Paul is vulnerable with the Corinthians. He risks his reputation, he risks even the platitudes they might give him. And he does this because he wants to share with them both suffering and comfort. So, how can you do this? How can you become vulnerable even when you're wounded? And I think the reason why is because Paul had already taken his cross. He had already taken his suffering to Jesus. He had already been, he had already received the comfort of Christ. He had already lingered on his own despair and brought it to the cross. And he knew that it would, that too would go through the cross and be resurrected. And so he's able to risk, he's able to be vulnerable for the sake of the Corinthians, for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to them and sharing in community with them. the One writer um, said it this way, he says, If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it, usually to those closest to us, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, and invariably the most vulnerable, our children. See, Paul knows that the Corinthians suffer. And if I don't show them my suffering, they might not show me their suffering. And if they don't deal with their affliction, then they miss out opportunities to proclaim the gospel and proclaim the comfort of Christ. Now, can you imagine what this would look like for us to become wounded healers, agents of comfort, even in our pain and affliction? Can you imagine what it would be for us as a church to share in the, in the cross of Christ and share in one another's cross and actually comfort one another with the comfort that we receive from God. That's what he says. He says, I was comforted by God. Now I want to share this comfort with you. Can you imagine what that would look like in our community groups? All of you in community groups, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, do I share the pain that I'm experiencing or do I hide it? What would it look like if, if you actually revealed your pain to your community group? You know what I imagine? I imagine a lot of other people are going to join you. And, and what if you revealed your pain to your unbelieving neighbor? And when you do, you actually get to reveal something about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When you share your pain and your affliction, you get to reveal the cross of Christ to the world. And our lives are meant to reveal the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I encourage you to to linger at the foot of the cross and bring your pain and your suffering there and look to the resurrection so that you can, com- you can find comfort there and comfort one another and be agents of comfort for one another. Now, today is a little-known and little-celebrated hol- holiday, but Christians all over the world are celebrating the ascension. And, and what the ascension means is that when we recite the Apostles' Creed, when we talk about the life of Jesus, he, he came, he was incarnate, he lived, he was persecuted by Pontius Pilate, He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And this is important for us because one, it shows us that there's the dust of earth on the throne of heaven. As some have said, our humanity is there in heaven. But it's also a guarantee that the story is not over. That we will be made like Christ. We will be resurrected. And it's also what when, when Christ ascended into heaven, it teaches us that what we can experience with our, sense, with our five senses is not all there is. Because we have a, a, a risen Savior that is somewhere else that we can't see right now. And he will one day take us there. He will one day make all of this new. And so it reminds us in our suffering to look beyond what we can see and experience. But it also does something else for us. When Christ went up, the Holy Spirit came down. And next week we'll be looking at Pentecost Sunday, when the Spirit was poured out on the nations. But do you remember what the Spirit was called? Jesus said, I'm going to leave, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you the Comforter. In Greek, it's the Paraclete. The one who comes alongside, the one who strengthens and encourages and lifts up. And so we get to access this comfort, not on our own, not by trying hard enough, but by receiving the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside us and reminds us of where Christ is and reminds us of where we will be someday. And that's why Paul ends this passage, this section by pointing us to hope. He says that we, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. See, it's not just comfort that we need, it's deliverance. And he says, on him we have set our hope, that, we, that he will deliver us again. And so we end by looking to Jesus as our hope and, the, and, and meeting him through the Holy Spirit who comes alongside us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. And that means we get to, to participate not just in this community but in the community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as we do that, we get to participate in our communities here to come alongside one another, to minister the presence of Christ to one another. And that's actually much better than platitudes. That's much better than words that wound. We get to come alongside one another with our presence because that's what God does for us, and we get to point one another towards the hope that we have, because that's what God does for us, and we get to say this story that we're in now is not the end of the story. There will come a day when God will deliver us, and that curse will be fully and finally dealt with, and I think that in America, no one has understood this better than the black church and especially the hymns that they have produced. And I'll end with this. One of my favorite hymns is Beams of Heaven, written by Charles Tinley. And he says it this way, in this view of the world to come and the deliverance that that is to come in the midst of suffering now, he says, Burdens now may crush me down, disappointments all around, troubles speak and mournful sigh, sorrow through a tear-stained eye. There is a world where pleasure reigns. No mourning soul shall roam its plains, and to that land of peace and glory I will go someday. That's our hope, and that's what we offer to one another in suffering and in pain as we unite our suffering to the cross of Christ and we look to his return. Let me pray for us. Lord, you have given us your presence. You have forgiven our sins. They are dealt with and paid for. And Christ is seated on the throne and the work is done. There's no more for us to do. And for that, Lord, we take comfort and we rejoice. But we ask that your Holy Spirit would come alongside us to remind us of the hope that we have and that we would come alongside one another as agents of comfort and point one another to the world to come. We pray that today in the name of Jesus. Amen.